If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So when people talk about my passion for history, uh, well, yeah, but it's just, it's just, it's more my passion for stuff. It's my passion for what's all around me. That was Tony Robinson talking to us about his autobiography, No Cunning Plan. It's not just that the king dies, it's that there is such a significant number of men involved in this campaign who died. That's not expected. Um, the, the sheer loss and the large-scale loss of life. And that was Katie Stevenson discussing the Battle of Flodden. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fifth podcast of September 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Actor, writer, comedian and TV presenter... Tony Robinson is one of the best-loved figures in British popular entertainment. He's also played a huge part in popularising history in the country, through his role as Baldrick in the Blackadder comedy series, 
and through presenting numerous history and archaeology documentaries, most notably Channel 4's Time Team. Tony has just released his autobiography, and we were lucky enough to have a chance to speak to him about his career in history television. Putting the questions to Tony was our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. So obviously you're a very well-known figure in the history TV circuit for things like dramas such as Blackadder, children's TV series like Maid Marian and Her Merry Men, and of course loads of documentaries including Time Team. But what was it that first got you really into history and archaeology? I think I'd have to separate those two things out. Uh, From the time I was tiny, like about two years old, my dad was telling me stuff about his life as a kid and in particular his life as an airman in the Second World War up in Scotland. He he managed to avoid violence and uh, he teamed up with a lot of the Canadian forces who were up in Scotland at the time and played in the Canadian forces dance band and spent a lot of the war um, fighting Hitler by playing boogie piano in small towns in Scotland and had the time of his life. He was a working class boy. It was the first time he'd been away from home for any extended period. So I was always getting these narratives. And my mum would my mum would tell me stories as well. Our house was just full of stories. And then later on, when I started to read, then as middle class, reasonably arty parents do, they encouraged me to have shed loads of books. And so it was all narrative, really, in my house. And and the narratives that I that spoke to me most, I think, were what I later saw as the historical ones, but didn't at the time make any difference between them and stories about what had happened yesterday. Um, I think just because my dad was such a good storyteller and he had painted the past in such a vivid way for me, and because those first stories from my dad had been about someone I knew, I kind of got the idea from the moment I started listening to stories that there was a real time that had existed that wasn't the time that I was in now. And that during that time, people had adventures and did crazy things and were a bit like I was now. And and if that was true of my mum and dad, then um, presumably that was true of my great mum and great dad, etc., going back in time and time and time. So I, I didn't... I didn't really see time as this continuum starting really in focus and gradually going back till you couldn't see it at all. It was just more, it was a series of moments, I think. And, I, and when, then when I was about 10, my teachers started to divide our curriculum up into subjects. And I realised that there was this subject called history, which was what I've just described to you, and that you could get marks for that. And I thought the teachers were bonkers. Why would you give marks for that? Who who wouldn't want to know that anyway? Who For who is that not central to their life? For who is that not as much part of their life as uh, walking and breathing and being loved and having rows? It was just so central to me. and, and, And it always has been. So when people talk about my passion for history, uh, well, yeah, but it's just, it's just, it's more my passion for stuff. It's my passion for what's all around me and what's all around me only makes any sense at all in context. And I, I was chatting to somebody yesterday um, and he said that his 
the three words that really drove him were reverence for life. And I came back with the three words that really drive me are context is all, whether it's about emotions or relationships or every step you take or the language that you use or the books you read or the laws you're governed by only makes sense to me if it's in a context and primarily in a historical context. But you discovered archaeology. According to your book, you write about discovering archaeology a bit later in life. Yes, I think that's true. Um, I was an actor at the Chichester Festival Theatre in one of the long, hot summers of the late 1970s. And um, they were digging Roman Chichester. There was a big project to dig Roman Chichester. And all I was aware of initially was that there were a bunch of young men and women in trenches looking remarkably like beggars, (laughs) but were in fact graduate students uh, studying archaeology who were part of the team that were digging Roman Chichester. And I got my partner at the time and I got very interested in what they were doing. We used to watch them like you... like you watch men digging a hole in the road, and eventually they, they lured us over the barricade and we started joining in. Um, my partner Mary was very good at recognising the subtleties of colour which uh, explain the different periods of time. I was crap at that, but what I was very good at was watching archaeology, and it's a, it's a talent which I've developed over the, the, the last 25 years or so. And your interest in archaeology was how you got sucked into history TV, essentially. Yes, I suppose it was. Um, By that time, I had already done the first couple of Blackadder series. And a lot of my new friendships were with people like Ben Elton and Richard Curtis, who were passionate about history. And somehow... The notion of TV and uh, and history had fused into one for me. I had always believed in the old Rethian tradition of the BBC. Uh, From its start, it was supposed to be about entertainment and education. And quite honestly, I'd never seen much difference between those two things. Uh, But nevertheless, I believed that that was true. And I can remember some years prior to time team taking off, being out in New Zealand with and, and meeting my partner's brother, who was a geomorphologist out, out in New Zealand. And he was talking to me about uh, continental drift and tectonic plates and uh, volcanicity. And at that time, it was stuff that no one I knew, no one I knew had even heard of the phrase tectonic plates. It was just unknown uh, outside a small coterie of intellectuals. And I thought, this is wonderful stuff. This is incredible. This is, everybody in the world ought to know about this stuff. And it, and, and it fired me with a kind of passion. And when I went out to Australia and, and discovered that Australia was at that time rapidly developing into the most successful capitalist country in the world, having been, just over 100 years previously, a series of six convict colonies separated by thousands of miles of outback. And that seems to me, that seems to me absolutely remarkable, equally as remarkable as the absurd animals that skipped around that outback. After I got back from Chichester, I got friendly... Uh, I started doing extramural courses in archaeology, uh, the the guy who ran them was, in fact, Mick Aston. Who went on to be your co-presenter in Time Team. Yeah, yeah. 
And I remember at the time we tried to get a couple of teleseries off the ground, but no one was interested in, a, in an archaeology series fronted by an academic nobody had heard of who looked like a renegade from Woodstock and, uh, uh, and a long-haired comedian. You know, that just wasn't where the zeitgeist was, the zeitgeist was at that time. Um, so nothing came of it. But then when eventually I was approached about doing Time Team, my, I remember my agent being very sceptical about the notion of me presenting uh, as though it would kind of dilute my credibility as an actor. But I remember thinking, yes, I'm being offered a stage on which to talk about stuff that I think is incredibly important. So why do you think that um, feelings towards the idea of Time Team changed? Because, like you say, even yourself at first, after the pilot, you were unsure about it. I would say more than unsure. I turned it down. I turned the series down. I, um, it seemed to me to be very um, uh, over-gimmicky at that time. Um, lots of um, mysterious keys with mysterious locks that had to be found for them. Uh, a printer and suddenly, ka-chung, 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 there was a message on the printer. Ooh, a mystery guest would appear from nowhere, that kind of thing. It was as though... The production was so nervous about the idea of archaeology that it thought the only way that it would be digestible to um, uh, a television audience was if it was coated with, with this saccharin. So do you think stripping all that back from time to time and just presenting it as this is archaeology, do you think that's the secret to its success? It's very interesting that you should put it in that way because I think that's more a perception than a reality. Yes, we stripped away the, uh, the kind of gimmicks that I've just described. Nevertheless, the casting of Time Team wasn't just half a dozen uh, arbitrary archaeologists who just happened to be in the same pub one Tuesday afternoon and therefore we cast them. It was cast as rigorously as you would cast a television drama. The choices of location, the kind of archaeology that we used, the kind of guest archaeologists that we used, the kind of people who we got in, uh, who, who, who had written to us, you know, they were kind of auditioned in exactly the same way and we would then... This, this couple is really interesting and yes their archaeology is exciting and it'll be a completely different kind of archaeology to what we've had in this series so far all those discussions were going on at the, at the same time so in fact it is as much a crafted piece of television uh, as uh, Britain's Got Talent or indeed as any good factual book in the, 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 the craft in it is, is as important as the contents because without the craft Who's going to read it or how will it be coherent? And at the heart of Time Team, there was essentially the fact that you could not find anything good or you could find literally nothing at all. How did you deal with that? That sort of grew. I think at the beginning we all hoped that every week we would find the, the, the top of a pyramid after having scraped down for two inches. Um, all except Mick, who just thought, whatever the phenomenon is that we explore this week, that's the phenomenon, and so that's what we, re we record, and people will like that. He was, in a sense, much more austere about uh, the archaeology, but also, in a sense, much more right than we were, because we soon discovered that, in fact, yes, it was the journey that people were interested, the intellectual and, indeed, the emotional journey, because we used to get quite wound up, as you know, uh, of what happened during those three days. If, at the end of the three days we found 
something wonderful. That was one kind of a reward. If we found, as we did two or three times, something fraudulent, that was another kind of reward. If we found absolutely nothing at all, that was kind of a reward too. Um, I would often be stopped by people in the street who would like wag a finger at me after an episode where we found nothing. And, and they would. this is what they would actually say. They'd say, you didn't find anything this week. You buggers. As though it was some kind of uh, playful uh, trick that we'd played on the viewers not to find anything. But, of course, the reality was that finding something really special only had validity if you were only going to find it occasionally because that's the the way of the real world. Mm -hmm. You can't find an Anglo-Saxon hoard every week. No, no. But you did find some great things. What what was your personal favourite, do you think, of them all? Experientially, the most uh, exciting for me was we were at a place called Turkdean in Gloucestershire. We knew there was a Roman villa there. There was all the evidence was that there was a Roman villa there, and indeed by the end of day one, we had found the top of a wall. So we we knew there was a Roman villa there. We knew what was the inside, what was the outside. We knew vaguely where we were in the villa. And um, a Roman uh, mosaic specialist said to me, "I am pretty sure." that below where we are standing now is a mosaic floor. It might be pretty messed up, but I reckon it's there. And he bunged me the trowel and said, see if you can find it. And I said, I can't. I can't. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm just a bloke who pretends he knows stuff. Uh, and he said, he said, no, the thing about flooring is it's robust. You wouldn't make flooring unless it was robust. So I, I'll be leaning over your shoulder. You know how to tra- trowel reasonably carefully. You know, you don't lead with the point, you lead with the side kind of thing. And... Um, have a go. And actually unveiling what turned out to be a very large mosaic. Uh, certainly, I think it's fair to say the, the, the largest, most intact mosaic that had been found in England in the last five years or so was something of a buzz. And you got to personally unveil it, I guess, as well. I did. And uh, that was what was so weird. Uh, I mean, you can imagine being the first person for 16, 1700 years to see this thing and uh, to be able to to read it to interpret it to see where the patches were to see where the good patches were and see later on where the bad patches were where people just kind of you know like I would do (laughs) cut very large pieces of old tile and fitted them in where the mosaic had worn Um, and later still uh, the the burnt bits where presumably uh, Anglo-Saxons or other invaders had totally disregarded the original function of the floor and had just used it as a dry place that they could sit on. So Time Team, the digs were not just about entertainment, but you also got a lot of funding channeled towards academic archaeology mm. and some of your findings were turned into academic research. It was very important for the archaeologists from the moment that we started digging in episode one that what we did should be part of Britain's archaeology, should not be, as it were, a fun show about archaeology, although from my point of view it was very important that it should be that as well, but that it should be real archaeology. And that meant a number of things. It meant integrating whatever finds we found uh, into uh, the right collections. It meant recording the archaeology sufficiently rigorously so that uh, so there was a narrative of it available for anybody who might want to uh, go to it in the future, of locating it specifically via GPS and via drawings and via 
grids uh, so that it, it didn't get lost. Because, you know, we found, particularly if we were looking for uh, digs that had been done before, say, by antiquarians, they would describe where in the ground it was, but you couldn't find the damn thing now. Where the little tree is? Come on, <laughs> that was 100 years ago. <laughs> But initially, there were a couple of academic sceptics about Time Team. There were more than a couple of academic sceptics. It was led by, uh, I think, a handful of academics who had been on television themselves and displayed a real, I think, childish and waspish attitude towards the next wave of archaeological television. Um, And I think merely exposed themselves by doing so. But having stirred up that hornet's nest, for a while it became perceived as a fact that Time Team wasn't producing proper archaeology and that it wasn't recording its finds. And, of course, what would happen would be occasionally, and anyone who's been involved in archaeology at all will know that this is the bane of people's lives, you would pay someone to do a record and they wouldn't do it for years and years, uh, or a particular specialist wouldn't deliver their stuff so your report would be kept hanging, or something would get lost. The, the what happens every day in archaeology but in but for us it was happening under a microscope and occasionally we would say things on time team which were daft and uh, you know hopefully by the end of day three we would recognize how daft they were and say oh god you know uh, why didn't we look in that particular book so so obvious you know why didn't we look in the parish records um but of course when you're that exposed it's very easy for people to trivialize what what we're doing and I know that hurt Mick very much I thought it was wonderful because quite honestly the the more contentious we were the more people were going to watch the program as far as I was concerned but you can imagine Mick who had no experience or virtually no experience of television uh, suddenly to find that people who he has respected and people who he thought were his academic friends and colleagues uh, suddenly turned on him and ridiculed him I have to say that's only till about halfway through a time team. Then this extraordinary phenomenon became apparent, which was that in many instances, three times as many uh, potential students were applying for places on archaeology courses as had been 10 years previously and were citing time team as their major influence. Suddenly the whole attitude changed. And indeed, as the notion of public access became more central to the requirements for every university. Suddenly people who had been very bitchy about us before wanted to come on board because it helped them fulfil a criterion which they needed to fulfil if if they were going to be doing their job properly. Have you found that in other things that you've worked on that are history-based that there's that conflict between academic history and public history? I think there is almost always a conflict between academic and public Uh, one of the things that I've tried to break down are those walls which academics tend to build around themselves. I can see why they often do it. Academia is a very competitive world and it's a dialectic world and it's a, a world where people express themselves by writing pithy phrases. In other words, Academics can be even cattier than actors, and often are, and often think they're very smart in doing so, although they resent it deeply if anybody does it to them. Um, Is that more the case in archaeology than in other aspects of academic life? 
I have to say I've noticed it enormously amongst archaeologists, but then maybe that's because they're the academics I've been closest to. Mm-hmm. I'll leave others to judge that. So obviously you became a household name and most people will know you for playing Baldrick in Blackadder, mm-hmm. which took a different historical setting for each of its um, series. It was immensely popular. So what do you think that the legacy of that has been on people's public understandings of history? Teachers tell me that it's had an enormously positive effect on uh, on children's understanding. Uh, I think a lot of people among the general public who watch it, it doesn't really cross their mind that it's history. It's not just another comedy series. In the same way that most of us can watch a whole movie without really listening to any of the music, even though it's been going on for the previous 112 minutes. Um, I think we, we all have blind spots, but uh, teachers use uh, Blackadder a lot as a starting point to get kids' imagination going. That, of course, is particularly true of Blackadder Goes Forth. And I had a public spat with Michael Gove when he was the uh, education minister, when he said he didn't think that programmes like Blackadder or films like Oh, What a Lovely War should be included in the curriculum for children studying the First World War because it gave them the wrong idea. Uh, I thought that was the most profound failure on Michael Gove's part to understand how people become engaged in any subject. The idea that any child would take Blackadder literally seemed to me absolutely absurd. Children are incredibly sophisticated, far more sophisticated than previous generations at decoding the mass media. They wouldn't think that because we told jokes, the whole World War was jokes, any more than they would think that because Rupert Brooke was a war poet, the whole First World War took place in rhyming couplets. You know, it's nonsensical. But did you or any of the team, before you'd read the scripts and seen how Blackadder the Fourth was going to turn out, which was, of course, I should mention, um, set in the Flanders trenches, mm. Did you have any reservations about using a time period that was in many ways so close to home for that material? Yes, we had very good conversations about that. Uh, ben Elton was the person who was most passionate about doing the uh, First World War as the next Adder series because it was a period of history that he that, that consumed him. Um, we had some anxieties that people would think we were taking the mickey out of the sacrifice of those who died. Ben said, we must make it very clear that that is not the case. What we are taking the mickey out of is the madness that led to that sacrifice. And the whole of that last episode, which for a lot of people was quite an iconic piece of television, was a deliberate statement on our part to say, this is what we believe, just to make it clear in case anybody should should happen to be upset by it. But actually, I think by that time we'd made our point. And I, I, I never heard of one complaint to the BBC uh, about us being trivial about the First World War. And when you think of the shed load of complaints the BBC gets every day about every subject under the sun, I think that's quite remarkable. Because the series did, did change in character for that season... Would you agree? It did change in character, but that was not solely because it was about 
a, a, a terrible slaughter, which people had, if not a first-hand memory of, certainly a second-hand memory of. It was also about the fact that we wanted to create uh, an ensemble series, which really was focused almost entirely on the five of us. It was modelled very much on a lot of the finest 60s uh, comedy series like um, Steptoe and Son and Hancock's Half Hour, which were very domestic, had an, an, an enormous feeling of claustrophobia about them and essentially was the interaction between a very small number of characters who you are already familiar with and that's what we tried to do and actually of course the trenches was the perfect environment to do it because we were doing it without anyone even noticing that that's what we were doing and the ending has really gone down in tv history as an incredibly poignant ending for a sitcom mm, mm. were there any reservations about taking a series that had started so um, kind of surreal and slapstick and hilarious and giving it such a sombre ending. Uh, I don't think any of us on time to, on uh, Blackadder ever thought that funny was the opposite of serious. I think we all felt that trivial was the opposite of serious. So, so the short answer to that is no. The long answer to that is actually the, the end of it wasn't working very well at all and it was made in the edit. We didn't know quite how it was going to end until we actually saw it when it was transmitted and all that stuff of the mixing through to the poppies and, uh, was uh, as much a surprise for us as it was for the audience. You did a few years ago... Uh a series called The Worst Job in History, which you reflect on in your autobiography as potentially your worst ever job. Yeah, yeah. Why, why was that the case? Well, it was my worst ever job because uh, the uh, silver lining for the people who did the, the worst jobs in history is they only had to do one of them. I had to do every single one. Um, also, um, what I realised terribly soon was that when you do one of the worst jobs you build up the, the muscles to do it uh, you also build up the resistance to, to infection to do it I had neither of those things so I was like a you know I was like a I was like a guinea pig trying to press weights as far as doing the the uh, the worst jobs was concerned it gave me it gave me a huge respect for the work of ordinary people in in history, um, I always used to laugh as as everybody did about the the way Monty Python described medieval peasants as just kind of brain dead, wheezy, stupid, um, and I still am happy to share in that joke. But actually, I think it's the antithesis of the truth. I think just to survive at all as a medieval peasant, you'd have had to be pretty smart, pretty robust or pretty tricky. <laughs> so what were your conclusions about what the worst job in history really is? Um, well, again, it's so subjective, isn't it? I, you can drop me into poo as many times a day as you like and I won't flinch. I, that, having uh, you know, changed a lot of nappies in my life, it just doesn't bother me. It bothers me if there isn't a tap around for, the, for about a mile and a half, but apart from that, it doesn't bother me. So um, uh, anything... anything Anything moist isn't a problem for me. Uh, but heights I've always found really problematic. And so doing a job like, uh, take, which I describe in my, my autobiography at some length, of uh, abseiling down one of the cliffs at the Gower in order to get 
uh, seabirds' eggs, which is what they used to do, what the Anglo-Saxons used to do in winter to get sufficient protein. I can even... Stumbling my way through talking about it to you now, I feel sick. Hated it. Being dangled off a church spire. The the third tallest church spire in Oxfordshire may not sound a big deal to you, but it really was to me. And when you start to climb the tower, whenever you see the, the spire, whenever you see a spire from some way off, it's large at the bottom and moves to a point. When you're close up, it is sheer. It is a 90 degree angle from the floor, probably even slightly more. So you feel you're going up backwards. Horrible. Couldn't do that at all. Other people, they wouldn't bother about that. It sounds like you've got into some various different scrapes over the years. But in all the years of making history programmes and documentaries, of which there have been many that we even haven't even had a chance to mention, what have you seen change or what do you think has stayed the same? This is actually a very complex question to answer, and I think there are a huge number of answers for me as somebody sort of working in television. There is no doubt that commissioning editors have fads for, uh, and, and have absolute beliefs which can be mad. There is a belief in British television at the moment that documentaries about the Wild West don't do business. I did one last year for Discovery, which did three times as many viewers as would normally get into that slot. Uh, Another belief amongst commissioning editors is that the 1950s is a no-go area. Uh, Whether or not that's true, I have no idea. I, I absolutely believe I could do an enormous number of documentaries about the 1950s, a a decade which I care about with a passion because it was the decade that that formed me in the same way that Catholic children were informed by Thomas Aquinas, you know. Um, And I, I I find it hard to understand. I think really what happens is that just one or two series go out that bomb that take place in a particular period and an and, and unwarrantable assumption is drawn from that. Um, uh, but those, those fads do change. Uh, a lot of the history that we see on television is simply driven by the curriculum. Uh, driven by the curriculum and driven by a belief that kind of cosy periods of history, periods of history which people think they know a lot about, they will be drawn to yet again. So Elizabeth I, Victoria, doesn't sound so cosy, but nevertheless, flipping Hitler. Um, you know, you just wave after wave of programmes about them. Uh, at the moment, of course, World War One, a, a glut to which I have contributed. <laughs> so what would you like to see then that's kind of missing? Everything else. Uh... I want to see more about Anglo-Saxon history. I think the the journey from Offa through to Alfred through to Ethelred uh, through to Harold is just riveting. What else is in the pipeline for you in history? category? A lot. Um, A lot that I can't talk too much about simply because I haven't signed the contracts yet, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be doing uh, more First World War stuff between now and uh, 2018. Uh, I think I will be 
more more general walks around various parts of Great Britain uh, and more historical and prehistoric walks around Great Britain. That was Tony Robinson speaking to Ellie Cawthorn. His book, entitled No Cunning Plan, is out now in the UK, published by Sidgwick and Jackson. In the US, it's set to be published early next year by Macmillan. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. For our second interview this week, we're heading back more than 500 years to 1513 and the Battle of Flodden, which was the largest ever clash between England and Scotland. It's the subject of the History Explorer article in the October issue of the magazine. And to accompany the piece, our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, spoke to Katie Stevenson, Keeper of Scottish History and Archaeology at National Museum Scotland. Here's what they had to say. How would you describe Anglo-Scottish relations in the years and decades before James invaded England? Well, I think that actually things were pretty good. Um, Anglo-Scottish relations were fairly positive uh, right across the 15th century and into the early 16th century. And there had been moments, pockets of um, uh, conflict just... um, that had been that had arisen through very specific circumstances, but on the whole, England and Scotland were um, 
I guess you could say frenemies. Um, they weren't. They weren't um, particularly. Relations weren't particularly antagonistic. And the most important point in this context is that um, when uh, the Tudor dynasty was established, um, James the Fourth very quickly um, agreed to marry Margaret Tudor, the daughter of. Henry VII, who is the sister of Henry VIII. So there was a very close connection which in some senses stabilised or provided some stability to the new fledgling Tudor dynasty because, of course, they marry into a very stable Stuart dynasty. Um, but it also then brings uh, Scotland and England closer together dynastically as well as politically. So it, it, there was antagonism, but it was it never um, it never really emerged into full scale war that had been seen uh, in the wars of independence, for example. So was this marriage more important to England than Scotland? Then was it was it the Tudor then the Tudors Henry the Seventh that really pushed for this this union? Yeah, I think I think it can be read in two ways. It's often, that marriage is often read as um, a coup for Scotland. <laughs> Acquire, of course, wonderful, marrying into this uh, latterly, retrospectively um, fantastic Tudor dynasty. Um, at the time, it's actually very significant for the Tudors that they managed to secure uh, that position because it gives them, um, it gives them a very, uh, one of them, it's the Stuarts are one of the most significant dynasties in Europe in this period. Uh, so it gives them uh, some, some stability, but it also will hopefully produce heirs, which is the, the critical issue. So it's it's important for both of them. Um, how would you say the balance of power was between the two nations at, say, uh, the beginning of the 16th century? Um, was one significantly more powerful than the other? I think that depends on how you, at the beginning of the 16th century, I think it depends on what particular aspect you're looking at. Uh, Scotland doesn't really have, and the Scots don't really have imperial ambitions. Um, they're not looking to expand their territories in the way that uh, the kings of England had historically done so. So in that respect, um, England's more bellicose than Scotland. Um, but in terms of stability and dynastic stability, Scotland's got the edge. How different were the two countries in terms of education, governance, religious observance, th things like that? In terms of government, England's more centralised. Uh, it's much bigger. It's a bigger, um, it's a bigger structure uh, to, to, to govern. So there's a much more centralised government. There's much more... Um, oversight of things, whereas Scotland is a little bit more uh, relaxed and casual. Uh, they also raise taxes very differently. So, for instance, um, the Scottish army isn't paid to be in the field, whereas by this point a lot of uh, the English army are receiving payment for fighting, whereas in Scotland they're still levying armies on sort of sort of feudal lines. It's a bit... Um, Blurred. Some people receive payment, some receive land, some receive bonuses. So it's it's a bit more complicated um, because it's a much smaller kingdom, and so it doesn't require that, that those big machines of government at this stage. And what kind of man was James IV? What kind of ruler was he? Um, he's in every sense a Renaissance prince. Um, he 
uh, in, invests and promotes science, the arts. Um, he's a, a great patron of the arts. He looks to... Um, he, he does science experiments in his own court. Uh, he's interested in all of the latest um, technologies that are coming out, particularly out of Europe. Um, so he's really, um, he's in every sense a Renaissance prince. His court, he's, he's fairly, um, I wouldn't say controlling, but he, he is much more ambitious uh, and European outward looking than uh, previous kings had been. But in large part, that's because he has more money. Uh, he's able to do a lot more. He is freed from some of the shackles of the 15th century, um, which had uh, plagued some of the kings of the 15th century. He also isn't a minor when he becomes king, whereas all of his, his father, his grandfather, his great-great-grandfather, well, that was a bit, uh, James I was a bit different, but they had all been minors when they acquired the throne. Uh, so he's, he's 16, but he's able to rule. Um, so that, that is a very different um, atmosphere in his kingship. So where, where did it start to go wrong between the two kingdoms then? You say at the beginning of the 16th century, relations were you know, reasonably good. I mean, why did it end up in war so quickly? Where the situation becomes heated between England and Scotland is in Henry VIII's uh, early involvement with the Italian wars and with uh, the what's the War of the Holy League. So he becomes part of the Holy League, um, which is a, a sort of papal um, defence of the papacy and the target becomes France. Um, and this suits some of Henry VIII's ambitions and some of his imperial ambitions. And this comes back to the Hundred Years' War and what had been Anglo-French conflict for centuries about English territories in France. And so Henry VIII sees the opportunity uh, to um, assert his claim or to take back some of the what are perceived to be English territories or historically English territories in northern France. So he's using that um, as a, a, a opportunistically. The issue there comes that Scotland has an agreement with France to defend France in the event that England invades France. So Henry VIII goes off, invades. France or, and starts uh, camp military um, activity there. And James IV, through this, what's, what's called the Old Alliance, but it's, never, it's not a consistent um, treaty, but it, it had been renewed and this was the, the terms of the renewal. Through that agreement with France, James IV's hand is forced and the strategy is that he will invade into the north of England because obviously Henry's resources are all focused towards France, that he will invade into the north of England and force Henry to respond to that and to, to move some of his men up to the Scottish border uh, to, to, and, and therefore take some of the pressure off France. And that's what happens. So you say, but you say in the lead up or in the years before the battle, there was a few uh, border skirmishes, but yeah. this is on a different level, obviously, what was happening now. Yes, it's significantly different because he he actively invades 
in England. So he, it's an active decision. He takes several English castles. So he takes Norham, uh, Ettel, Ford. There's a, a big build-up of the Scots are really actually doing quite well and in invading. I don't think they ever had any plans to do anything much beyond a few taking a few castles, securing them and moving south. I don't think they ever anticipated holding them for long periods of time. Um, but it, it leads to a it's this it's distraction tactics. It's to it's to take it's to it's to bring English forces north to get them away from France and to um, reduce Henry VIII's military power in France. So how did England react militarily? I mean, so Henry was in France at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So who did, uh, yeah, who did he so send he north sends, to meet the Scottish? He sends, he sends um, the Earl of Surrey, Thomas Howard. He sends him north to lead an army. Um, and the Howards are, are really, um, at this point, are a, a very uh, successful military family. Um, and and Thomas Howard is a really great military commander. So he, he is the guy to send. Uh, he does very well. Yeah. Is there any thought of Henry returning back to England or is it always a case he was going to stay in France? No, his ambitions are in France. I, I think unless things have got completely out of hand, um, he wouldn't have returned. Um, it's it's strategically much better for him to stay at leading, his, leading his army where he wants to gain territories um, rather than... So it, it's really, from his position, it's it's more of a an annoyance that the Scots have invaded, they've got to be dealt with, but it's a sort of, in a much in the much bigger picture, it's a side story to the bigger campaign that he's on. Um, his ambitions there are firmly in France, so he just needs to send somebody to deal with this northern invasion to keep, because the Scots can't take the whole of England. They don't have enough resources or power. Why did the battle take place at Flodden? Was it was it James? I, I take it, it was James's choosing where where the site of the battle. Yeah, well, it's at Brankston Hill. They end up at Brankston Hill, and it's. Uh, I think that the English army sort of push them in that direction, um, and they end up on the top of this hill, basically, um, and that's where the conflict takes place. It's not a they they don't decide to meet at the field of Flodden or anything that that sort of. Um, planned it just ends up being that Brankston Hill is where the battle takes place and it's boggy it's um appalling conditions and they really get stuck on on uh, you know if you if anyone's ever been to the to Brankston Hill you'll see it it's 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 not a great location uh to, it's it's difficult to see it's um it, it, it actually puts them at a disadvantage. They put the Scottish at a disadvantage. Yeah, they, they, they are put at a disadvantage there. Why is that? Because of the boggy ground? Well, yeah, the reports are that it had been raining, that the, the and heavily raining in a sort of, sort of Scottish summer way. It had been massively, it was wet, it was marshy, it was boggy. Um, that there that their fighting technique or the reports tell us that their fighting technique was inappropriate for that terrain and for being on the summit of, of a hill as well. Why is that? Um, well, the reports say that they used pike formations, which had been very popular and had worked very successfully for the Scots uh, for quite a long time, where they kind of get these long pikes and they fought, they kind of 
come around into circles and form pikes because it's hand-to-hand combat. It's not a pitched battle in the sense that you have cavalry charging and archers and those, it's not that kind of battle. Um, it's not a formal battle in that sense. Um, so they they are, it's hand-to-hand combat. They're getting bogged down in this terrain. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty close fighting and they, the, the kind of tactics that they would use in that normal type of fighting don't work. So it's really easy to get stuck, to not be able to manoeuvre yourself very quickly out of trouble, um, which leads to uh, it's estimated now 5,000 uh, killed in the hand-to-hand melee. Because normally in a battle of this sort, in a, in a we have a very romanticised notion of battles, but normally... Um, Knights would be uh, taken hostage and ransomed. So war in the in the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries, right, right through actually from sort of thirteenth, fourteenth centuries, um, knights are not fighting each other to kill each other. They're fighting to try and capture each other so that they can then ransom that knight, get some money, uh, and get some kudos. But they're not they're not out to kill each other. They're out to win, and they win by capturing. So it's it's not um, it's not about killing. It's about uh, the gain of uh, as many people taken out of the battle as possible through capturing. So what tends to happen is foot soldiers get killed, but knights don't. Knights knights are worth something. They're worth a lot of money alive. Um, the problem here is that that doesn't happen because they're fighting in a very um, muddy, claustrophobic, uh, very close, um, uh, I guess, sweaty, hot battle which is taking place and where, where they are getting killed. So there aren't hostages taken at this battle. It's not the normal rules of a a sort of 15th, 16th century battle where you, you're taking hostages, which is why which is why the king gets killed. So what was the key moment of this battle where, you know, was, was there a moment where which determined that the English would, would win and uh, James's army uh, would be beaten? There are... The r- reports give us several moments where that might be the case, but the death of the king is really the, the key point at which it's it's clear that... Uh, all is lost. So how did that happen? We don't know. Um, we so, so much so that there are reports later that actually he just fled the battle scene because there are people who retreat. Um, there are um, contingents who, who retreat from the battle when it's clear that this is, this, this is going very wrong. Um, and later, I guess, conspiracy theorists argue that the king was removed from the battle by some of these people, um, taken to a nearby church for help and uh, then disappeared and that he he was just waiting to be restored um, at a suitable time. But th- th- this is fantasy. Um, but we, so because of that, we don't actually know how he was killed. We don't know uh, what happened to him. Um, parts of his body are allegedly removed from the battlefield, but it's it's all... It's very difficult to determine. So what effect on Scotland did um, the, the, the death of James have? How much of a blow was it to the nation? Well, I think any death of a king is uh, is pretty significant, and particularly 
in the case where it's as where the, the heir is a small child. Um, now Scotland, there's there's no immediate response from Scotland. We don't have records um, to know what the response was. The only thing to say to that is that the Scots are pretty well used to having kings dying young and and minors <laughs> taken to the throne. Right. Um, so it wasn't new territory in that respect then? No. Um, it was. It will have been shocking. Um, what will have changed the landscape from that perspective is the number of the nobility who died as well. So it's, it's, it's not just that the king dies, it's that there is such a significant number of men involved in this campaign who died. That's not expected. Um, the, the sheer loss and the large-scale loss of life, that is new. Um, and, that, and that in part is why it becomes so usable later on, is that this, this then comes to represent um, a huge loss to the kingdom and that, that then you get va- political vacuums, um, opportunity for uh, the renegotiation of um, family position within societies and so on. So that, that, that does see a big change. How did this battle define Anglo-Scottish relations over the, the, the following century? The significance of Flodden isn't really articulated until the 18th century. Right. What, what do you mean by that? Flodden is, is just another battle which happens in a long history of battles, um, but it becomes usable because it tells, because, because of the loss that happened at that battle to the Scots, it becomes usable in a way that it can be, it's a shorthand to reflect something that tells us about ourselves, about our society, about our values. Um, And that's why it's the 18th century that it becomes important and it becomes um, a prominent fixture in a national narrative. So is it romanticised? Is that fair to say? Uh, There are aspects where it's romanticised. I think it's romanticised by Walter Scott um, in the early 19th century. He romanticises the battle in... Um, he does a lot of romanticising. <laughs> um, but he uh, he wrote Marmion uh, in 1808, it was published 1808, which is about Flodden. It's, a, the, it's one of his um, border stories. And he and he writes a lot. He's, he's from the borders. He writes a lot about the borders. And he really is laying down that sort of romanticised Scottish history through these these tales. Uh, and so Marmion becomes phenomenally successful and alerts the world to Flodden, in effect. Uh, but it had already had a very strong, from the 18th century, it had had a very strong story uh, and narrative in the borders. So it, it, it remained important in the borders, um, which is where, you know, very close to where it took place in Northumberland, but on the other side in the Scottish borders, it was, it was very important. Um, it doesn't become nationally important until Walter Scott makes it important. That was Katie Stevenson speaking with Spencer Mizzen. You can read more from them in our October issue, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on Victorian slums, King Canute, 19th century Europe, women in politics and much more. You can get hold of our October issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. 
And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. And now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. The archaeological remains of a theatre which saw the first ever performance of Shakespeare's Hamlet have been given listed status. Built in 1576-77 by James Burbage on the junction of Curtain Road and New Inn Yard in Hackney, the venue, which was named simply The Theatre, was the first playhouse built in Elizabethan London. It is also believed to have been the first playhouse in which Hamlet was performed in 1596 with Richard Burbage as the lead. The theatre was dismantled by James Burbage's son in late December 1598 following a financial dispute. They moved reusable parts south of the Thames to Bankside for use in construction of their new venture, the Globe. The remains of James Burbage's theatre now lie beneath a modern mixed-use building in Hackney. The theatre has been listed as a protected monument to 16th and 17th century theatre alongside another theatre, The Hope, which was the last playhouse built in Elizabethan London. Duncan Wilson, Chief Executive of Historic England, told BBC News the archaeological remains of the first and last Elizabethan playhouses to be built in London give us fleeting glimpses of a fascinating period in the history of theatre. They are where some of the world's greatest stories were first told and it is wonderful that they remain today, bearing witness to our fascinating past. In other news, the first recording of computer-generated music created in 1951 on a gigantic machine built by Alan Turing has been restored by researchers. The recording was made 65 years ago by a BBC outside broadcast unit at the Computing Machine Laboratory in Manchester. The huge machine was used to generate three melodies, God Save the King, Bar Bar Black Sheep and Glenn Miller's swing classic In the Mood, The Guardian reports. Now, researchers at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand have restored the first recording, which was of the British National Anthem. The team fixed the audio, tweaking the speed and compensating for a, quote, wobble in the recording and filtering out extraneous noise. The machine shows that Turing, who is best known as the father of computing and for his work in breaking the Nazis' Enigma code, was also a musical innovator, the researchers say. Meanwhile, the skeleton of a Roman man who had to be squeezed into a stone coffin after undertakers made it too small for him has been discovered by archaeologists in Dorset. The perfectly preserved skeleton of a dead male found at the site of a quarry had to be bent backwards in order to fit into the sarcophagus that had been made one inch too short for his five-foot, ten-inch body. The skeleton was discovered by archaeologists working at the site of a quarry near Dorchester, Dorset. Dr Steve Ford, director of Thames Valley Archaeology Service, told the Daily Mail, We have found 12 graves, but 11 of them have gone because the ground is too acidic, but one was buried in a sarcophagus and the bones were very well preserved. He was a man aged about 25 in relatively good health up until his death. The coffin maker's error would have been a costly one, as sarcophagi were very expensive and only made for wealthy people, said Dr Ford. 
Just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our History Weekend events, taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Dan and Peter Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver and many more. Our Winchester event is almost upon us, so do check out the website historyweekend.com for more details and tickets. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time when we'll be talking about the Russian revolutions of 1917. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.